Well, with a view then to uh, God's help and guidance, uh, let's turn to that uh, second passage that we read from God's Word, the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 4. And we read in verse 16 that Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So he came to Nazareth. And uh, in the morning, you'll remember that after Christ's uh, first visit to Jerusalem, where he performed signs and wonders, he returned to Galilee. Uh, through Samaria because it was appointed for him there to be the saviour for people in the city of Sychar. So he returns to Galilee and he revisits the village of Cana where he had performed the first of all his miracles changing water into wine. And there, as we saw in the morning, he performed the second of these signs in Galilee by healing the nobleman's son. Now from there, Christ begins to preach in all the local synagogues around Galilee. And clearly he is accepted by the people, including the elders and the priests in the vicinity. He's accepted by them as a rabbi. As Nicodemus said to him in Jerusalem, we know that you are a teacher come from God. That was unusual because he hadn't been taught or trained in the normal ways. He hadn't studied at the feet of any other rabbi or anything of that kind. I suppose it was a mystery to them how he really knew what he knew, where he had learned it. And of course, we know the answer to that. But at least to their credit, they did recognize that he was a man sent from God. But as we saw in the morning, although he preached in all these synagogues and obviously preached there with considerable acceptance and spiritual reception, although that was so, he did not immediately go back to his own city of Nazareth. And the reason he didn't go back was because he knew that a prophet was never without honour except in his own country and, as he said later, even in his own house. So he knew what the response would be. But nonetheless, there was a time for him to go there. It was appointed to him by the Father. And even though he knew the rejection would come, it was still his duty to bring the gospel to his home city of Nazareth. And so he revisits the town of his own birth and of his upbringing, where his mother still is, and at least four brothers and two sisters. And when the Sabbath day came, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Now when you read verse 16, you could understand from it that he went into the synagogue as was his custom and stood up to read, as though that was part of the custom. That most certainly was not part of the custom. 
His custom simply was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That was nothing unusual. He had always done that. On this occasion, as we'll see in a moment, he stood up to read. But this synagogue was a synagogue he had known all his life, and a synagogue he would have attended since the age of about four or five. And most people are of the belief that there were schools connected to these synagogues. If so, he would have attended that synagogue school too. And in many respects, when the Lord went to that synagogue on this Lord's Day morning, you could say that things were the same as they always were. Synagogues were just simple churches, really. They were unadorned, plain buildings, and they were dominated by just two pieces of furniture. I mean, they had benches for the people to sit on. There was an elder's bench too, but two pieces of furniture dominated. First of all, the chest, in which were contained the scrolls, the writings, the law, and the prophets, from the book of Genesis down to the prophecy of Zechariah. All these scrolls were contained in a sacred chest in every single synagogue, just like we have the Bible in our church. The second simple piece of furniture was just a lectern or a pulpit from which the person who was reading or speaking, well, either stand, they stood or sat there, reading and expounding the Word of God. And in that connection, I just want to remind you of what I mentioned uh, a few weeks back. Um, The synagogues were local places of worship. This is the church you went to. The temple, you only went to it maybe three times a year. If, If you were a woman or a child, you didn't even need to go at all. But every man was required to go three times a year. The moment you make that distinction between a synagogue and a temple you understand why we worship, or you begin to understand why we worship the way we do. Nothing from the temple passes over into the New Testament church. The priesthood, the incense, the altars, the showbread, the music, the sacrifice, everything, that's gone. It all had its fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who fulfilled what the temple was all about. But the synagogues were here to stay. And the ideal would be that you would simply add to the chest each book of Scripture as it was written in the New Testament and that Christ would be preached no longer as one that was being waited for, but as one that had come. That's why James, for example, in the New Testament calls the church a synagogue. A simple, local place of worship except today we have the gospels and the letters the epistles so for the Lord Jesus Christ everything looked the same, the benches looked the same the family benches, he would have known every family on every bench in that synagogue he would have known them very well known them for 30 years he knew his own family bench and being the oldest in the family It's more than likely that the four brothers and perhaps their wives and the two sisters, he had at least two sisters, had their own family bench too. 
Everything is the same except, of course, one thing that is very different, and that's the preacher himself. And on this Lord's Day, an unusual thing happens in Nazareth because uh, Jesus, the son of the carpenter, the son, as was said, of Joseph and of Mary, is invited from the ordinary bench to sit on the elder's bench. And not only that, but when the time comes to give a word of exhortation, the ruler of the synagogue calls him to come up and to give this word of exhortation. And so the Lord Jesus stands up in his own village, in front of his own family and his own people, and he asks for the attendant to pass him the scroll of Isaiah. And so the attendant passes him the scroll and he opens the scroll. You know the way scrolls are, with the way that you twist the one and it takes the, the parchment off the other. So he twists along the scroll of Isaiah until he comes to chapter 61, on which we believe he has already prayed and meditated and he reads the verses from the chapter that he once read and then he sits down because preachers certainly in those days sat when they delivered their message. And of course his duty is plain. It's every preacher's duty. Nehemiah tells us what it is. In chapter 8 and in verse 8 he says that it is their duty to read the word of God distinctly, to give the sense and to make the people understand the reading. Now how wonderful it would be if every preacher in every pulpit throughout the length and breadth of Scotland and the UK and even every nation on the face of the earth just simply did that today on the Lord's Day, if they would read the Word of God distinctly, give the sense of it and make the people to understand the reading. And so he begins to speak. And what he says essentially is that today, he says, this chapter in Isaiah 61, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. This chapter that says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that, he says, is fulfilled today. In other words, when I preach to you today, Christ says, that passage is being fulfilled. It may have been written 800 years ago, and so it was. It was a long 800 years ago before Jesus Christ came into the world that Isaiah spoke these precious words. And at last Christ says, Today... This is fulfilled in your hearing. This passage, he says, speaks of me. And not only does it speak of me, but I am the one who is speaking in it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to you poor. That's a staggering thing to say, really. In that respect, it wasn't an ordinary day in the synagogue either. Uh, in some respects, it's the last thing people expected to hear. 
Here is someone not simply expounding the word and how it relates to God, but saying, this is about me. It's saying that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In other words, I am the anointed. I am the Christ. The word Christos, Christ, means anointed. It's the same word as Mashiach in the Hebrew, Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, is the anointed one. It reminds us that the, the one that was God was going to send into this world to save sinners was a man who was anointed above all others with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. As John tells us, without measure. Without measure. That, of course, took place on the day when Christ was baptized. When the Holy Spirit came upon him. Um, Of course, he had been with him and in him all through his life. But this was a particular anointing that was equipping him for the ministry that he was about to fulfill. A ministry of word and miracle. Message and miracle. And a fullness, an outpouring of the Spirit of God was upon him, the like of which was never seen before or seen again. And he says, that is me today. This is fulfilled in your hearing. And what's more, he says, this anointing with which my Father has anointed me, a fullness of spirit, he says, is an anointing to preach. To preach good news and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Of course, the word here is gospel. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Gospel is an old Anglo-Saxon word which means good news. God, spell, good news. The original meaning of spell is news. And this gospel message is for the poor. Not just materially, although they're not excluded. Far from it. As we saw in the morning, it's predominantly the poor who embraced the gospel. And maybe in all ages, really, it still is. But particularly those who are spiritually poor who feel themselves destitute, with nothing to claim, nothing to boast in, no standing before God, maybe feeling there's not much point to their life but no hope for eternity, well, there's a gospel for them. There is a euangelion for them, an evangelical message for them. There is good news from God. Now, there are three signs of this poverty. First of all, they are broken-hearted. He has sent me to heal the broken-hearted. The word in the Hebrew and in the Greek means just to be shattered. And they're shattered because of sin and shattered because of its consequences in their lives. Shattered is a strong word, but in many respects can we find a word strong enough to convey what, what sin actually does in our lives? Shatters us as people. Shatters our hopes. Shatters our expectations. It's shattered primarily and fundamentally a relationship with God. It shatters our relationships with each other. And God has sent Jesus Christ to heal those who are brokenhearted. And we sang in Psalm 147 of how the God who names the stars 
at the macro level is able at the micro level to come into the heart and tenderly bind those who are broken in their hearts and grieved in their minds. As no surgeon can, no surgeon of the body or surgeon of the soul, no psychiatrist or psychologist can, the Lord Jesus Christ can fix what's shattered, can reconstitute you as a man and woman of nobility before God, make you what you are meant to be, Take the pieces of your shattered and increasingly shattering life and piece them back together before God. I, he says, have come to do that. The second part of our poverty is that we are blind because, he says, I have come to give recovery of sight to the blind. Of course, he healed the blind physically. And although that was really a thing, and a genuine thing and an important thing. It was always a picture and a parable of the way in which he restored genuine sight and understanding. Uh, A sight of who we are and what we're called to be and a new sight of the glory and the majesty of God. A sight too of himself in his glory and majesty as the Redeemer and a sight of God in his glory and majesty too. I have come, he says, to enable you to see and to understand. A third part of our poverty is that we are bound. He says that I have come to preach liberty to the captives and liberty to the oppressed. Captives are people who are prisoners of war. The oppressed are debtors oppressed with servitude. Primarily, we are captive to sin because Satan has taken us captive and we're held in captivity. And we are debtors to the justice of God because we have broken that law and we are therefore under his wrath and curse. And in that connection, the good news that he proclaims is the acceptable year of the Lord, verse 19, which was this classic way of referring to the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. The 50th year was an amazing thing. Some people thought that, are still of the opinion that Israel had just forgotten how to keep that year. It's amazing how people do forget to keep years like this. Israel was commanded as a nation and a people on the 50th year to wipe out debts. Any lands that had been taken either by force or by servitude from people was to be restored to their original families. And all debts were cancelled. There was a special way of, of grading the matter depending on when the debts were incurred and how close it was to the 50th year. This kind of thing is extremely important. You know, people overlook this kind of thing as just a judicial law that was given to Israel. But these judicial laws came from the hand of God and they were good and right and true. They were equitable and fair. It reminds us that it's not right, for example, let's say for one nation to hold another nation, especially a very poor nation, forever and ever in a debt that they can't pay. Which was the case in connection with a lot of third world countries. There were Money given to those countries that were siphoned off by their leaders who didn't care about the people 
And these nations were put into a debt which was increasing all the time with an interest which was in itself impossible to meet. God says in the 50th year, finish it, cut it off. And we easily forget these things and we continue to ex- to exact what we believe is our due when God says, approach it another way. Approach it another way. There's a lot of things that could be said about things like that, but the Jubilee year is a wonderful thing. And what I want you to notice particularly is that it began on the tenth day of the seventh month. Here's your ten, and here's your seven. The tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. Now, again, it's, it's too much right now to go into this in detail, but you'll remember that on this single day of atonement, all Israel saw sin dealt with in a very special way. This was the day on which the high priest clothed himself in white. And a, a special offering was made before God. And the blood, the blood of that offering was taken just once on this day of the year, just once on the tenth day of the seventh month, it was taken into the Holy of Holies and it was sprinkled, that blood, on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And the high priest would come out and pronounce a benediction. And all those who were spiritual in Israel knew that that great sacrifice was a picture of their Messiah. It was a picture of God dealing with their sins for once and for all. It was on that day that the trumpet was blown. The word jubilee comes from the word for trumpet. The trumpet was blown and... So for the next year, on the 50th year, starting on that day, debts wiped out, everyone was set free, lands were restored, there was peace and rejoicing throughout the whole land, which was tied up with the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. In other words, the whole Jubilee year was to be a powerful reminder to people of what Christ was going to do for them, in suffering and dying for them, and the kind of life he was going to give them, a life of liberty and rejoicing and gladness. That's what the Jubilee year was about. And here is the Lord standing and saying, No, he says, I'm preaching this to you. That's what I'm giving you. I am the one who will, I don't believe he goes into this detail right now for a particular reason, But effectively he is saying here that I am the one who is going to lay down my life for you in order that you can have a jubilee. And that jubilee, of course, that never ends. This is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. After the seven cycles of Sabbath, the 50th year, in other words, it's just a picture of the life that never ends. A perfect Sabbath which the Lord gives our souls. There remains a rest for the people of God. Sins forgiven, freedom and order. In other words, if they really kept the Jubilee year, it's just a foretaste of heaven. It's like a, it's like a millennium, a microcosm of a millennium upon the earth. Now this is a marvellous message to preach. It's one of these occasions where you wish you had the whole text of the sermon. For, for whatever reason, on certain occasions, we're just not given the text. 
um, not given the substance of the sermon that was preached. We would love to have it. We would love to have it. Uh, but in his wisdom, God has held it back. What matters to us tonight, really, is how the people responded. The Lord going into Nazareth knew that a prophet will always be honoured, except in his own country. So how did they listen to the greatest preacher of all time, coming direct from God, being God, and preaching fresh from the wall of Isaiah? The Lord Jesus himself tells us to take heed how we hear. Take heed how you hear. The very first parable that he taught was, well, it's called the parable of the sower. In fact, he calls it that himself, so we stick to that. But it's interesting that what really comes before us is the four different soils into which the sower sowed the seed. And depending on the state of the soil, the seed was either fruitful or not. Most of you will know that the first kind of soil was so hard that the seed didn't penetrate the surface. That the birds of the air just took it away. And the Lord Jesus explained that parable later to the disciples and said that the birds of the air there just represent the evil one and his legions who just snatch the word out of you before it gets a chance to sit in your heart. Some of you sadly may know that. In fact, even Christians can sometimes identify with that, but certainly if you're not a Christian, you'll be familiar with this. Something maybe comes to you, but you're only out the door and it's gone. And we should be very, very careful that we don't take the sermon away from each other. We can easily do that. You can take the sermon off somebody by just diverting their minds too far from it. No, it's always right and proper to ask people how they are and exchange things like that. That's fine. But watch that you do not take the sermon away from anybody. And if you're afraid that you might have, pray over it. And ask the Lord that whatever it is you may have done to contribute to that might be taken away so that the Word of God will penetrate into the heart. Now the, the devil has a variety of means for doing that. Distractions. Obvious ones. But sometimes also prejudices. These prejudices can be so strong that you don't actually listen to the person at all. It's quite possible that you could have that tonight, although you're sitting here for some reason, you're prejudiced and you, you just don't want to hear, don't want to listen. That's why very often the devil works extra hard to, to attach something to a preacher that will make him a stumbling block to your hearing. He will work extra hard for that. Now the interesting thing here in Nazareth is that they began very well because we're told that the eyes of them all were fixed on him as he went up there to speak. Now if we're told that, that must mean that there was real interest of, of one kind or another. It's not necessary for us now to, to know exactly what kind, but they were certainly going to listen. They started off with the intention of listening. What's more, we're told that as the Lord began to speak, they 
marveled at his words. Or um, they marveled at the gracious words. That's verse 22. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded from his lips. The gracious words, the words of grace. Now, it's actually not easy to say what exactly that means. You could say that it refers to the words that he chose and how he used them. Now, that's something that every preacher ought to consider. Ecclesiastes tells us, and Ecclesiastes is an expression that means preacher. Because the preacher was wise, he taught the people knowledge. He pondered, sought out, and set in order many proverbs. Now, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. And the words which were written were upright, words of truth. And these words are like goads like the words of scholars, which are well-driven nails given by one shepherd, and by these, my son, be admonished. That would bring before us the idea that the Lord found acceptable and beautiful words with which to convey the gospel of grace. And is it not right that every preacher should strive at least to do that? Every preacher will be conscious that he will come short of an ideal and short of others. But it's every preacher's duty to strive to use fitting and beautiful words to describe the gospel of God's grace. But I can't help thinking that the expression gracious words or words of grace are actually more to do with the content of the message itself. Uh, I'm not leaving the other thing out. Far from it. People who heard it said that no one ever spoke like this man. Let that be true. There was the impression hearing him that nobody ever spoke like him. The people who said that, by the way, were people who had been sent out to seize him, to take hold of him, and to bring him before the authorities. And they couldn't. They felt themselves powerless to lay hands upon him because they said, no one ever spoke like him. So let that be. But I've no doubt for myself that the real meaning of words of grace is simply words that conveyed a message of grace. Words that spoke of the grace of God. After all, if this was his text, that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and to proclaim the jubilee here then. What's more gracious than that? That is telling us that God is good and merciful, that he forgives sins, that he reconciles sinners to himself, that he gives everlasting life, And that's grace, that an offended God, a God of righteousness and holiness, is still willing to stoop down and to come into terms of love and closeness and intimacy 
with people who have essentially just rebelled against him and said, we don't want you in our lives. And by speaking words of grace like that, Psalm 42 and verse 2 is fulfilled. That's the psalm that tells us that grace is poured literally into his lips. Psalm 45, in praise of the king, the the way it's put in the metrical psalm, it's um, grace pouring from his lips, grace from his lips to flow. If you go to the um, prose psalm, Psalm 45 and verse 2, it's, it's more literal. It's closer to what's there in the Hebrew. Grace is poured upon your lips. It's interesting that the prose version tells us what was put in. The metrical version seems to focus on what came out. Um, course they go together they go together the the words that Christ spoke were poured in they were given by the Father given to speak and of course they are poured out when he preaches them so we can say both that grace was poured words of grace words of kindness and mercy were poured into the Saviour's lips and by him they were poured out Now, isn't it interesting that the people who heard him in Nazareth marveled at these words? Marveled. The word means to be awestruck, to be astonished. It's actually the word that's used to describe people's response to a miracle. I mean, if you you saw a miracle, you would be open-mouthed and staggered beyond belief. That's how they felt, listening to Christ preach. That's how we should still respond to the word of God. At least when we read it, when a preacher preaches it, there will be lots of impurities and inadequacies attached to it. But you know, when you read the word of God, when you read the words of Christ, these words that are often in our Bibles in red, they should still come to us like that. Just the way they come to a convert. Just the way they come still to a person who's close to the Lord. They're still awed by the grandeur and the power and the majesty of these words. And may the day never cease for you as a Christian when they cease to be so. The world will tell us that familiarity breeds content. Has that become the case with the Bible for you? God forbid that it should be so. If for some reason you pick it up and you feel, well, it doesn't have the power or it doesn't have the strength or the beauty or the majesty, well, that is a time to call upon God because that's your fault, not God's fault. There's a familiarity with the Bible that you should have and which should never breed contempt. These words will always be words that are just apart and different. And take them in as though you were hearing them for the first time. As though you were receiving them from the lips of God himself. Which actually they are. They are poured from his lips. Even in the Old Testament. 
holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Still the word of Christ. Genesis, the word of Christ. Revelation, the word of Christ. Leviticus and the passage about the Jubilee, it's the word of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, it's the word of Christ. Be awed at it, marvel at it. Even these people who remained unbelievers marveled at the word of Christ. But there's different kinds of wonder, sadly. There's different kinds of wonder. We're told when Ezekiel preached that the people wondered at it. They wondered at it. God said to him, and this is when Ezekiel was feeling that there was no response. As for you, he said, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they're saying to each other, come and hear what the word is that's coming from the Lord. So they are coming to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. With their mouth they show love, but their hearts are pursuing their own gain. Indeed, now notice what God says to Ezekiel. Indeed, he says, you are to them like a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when these things come to pass, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So there are different ways to wonder at the word of God. The question is, in what way did the people of Nazareth wonder about it? Well, you have your answer. In a way, it's not obvious right at the beginning, but you'll notice at the end of verse 22, the very verse that tells us that they marveled at his gracious words, the end of the verse says, is this not Joseph's son? Where did that come from? Now you could say, well, that's an innocent enough thing to say. After all, they're conscious that this is the man from just down the road. This is the man in the carpenter shop for the last 25 years or so. We know his father, we know his mother, his brothers are here, and his sisters, they say. The Gospels tell us that they said all that. Brothers and sisters are with us. So, in that way, you could think of it as being an innocent enough expression. How on earth has he, has he come to be able to do this? But Jesus' reply shows us that it was more sinister than that. Jesus said to them, you are surely... He breaks off his sermon effectively and says, you will surely say this to me, physician... Take yourself. What we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that something's gone wrong with their hearing. I referred a minute ago to what the devil does. He does this very often. I mean, sometimes you find yourself hearing in the right way, and then before you know where you are, you're off it. Completely off it. 
and something may, may take you so far off it as to come round against what you're hearing. It, it's as though you come outside of yourself and you look into it and you're not happy with it anymore. Jesus' reply tells us that when they said, is this not the carpenter's son, it was a way of speaking down to him or speaking down about him. This is Mary's son. We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. Matthew gives us these names so we know the names of Christ's four brothers. And he says, his sisters aren't they here with us. There's jealousy in this. Sometimes you can call it small town resentment. Um, we know ourselves what inter-village rivalry can be like. And uh, we saw it not that long ago in the Gospel according to John. You remember when, uh, when Philip said to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel's first response? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, he said. No, he's from a village down the road, Cana. As I, as I recall it, I could be wrong here, but I think it's seven miles between Cana and uh, Nazareth. That's his first response. Nazareth. <laughs> Not interested, really. But just as you have inter-village uh, resentments, you can have intra-village resentments. In other words, the kind of resentments within a village that doesn't allow anybody to get on top of anybody else. In Glasgow, they had a famous expression for that. When they, want, when they felt somebody was um, getting a bit high above their station, they would say, we can't your father. We knew your father. I'm not supposed to, to end there. In other words, who do you think you are? You know, we, we know where you come from. Uh, so don't entertain any great thoughts about yourself. That's the kind of thing that goes on here. We know his father. We know his mother. We know his brothers. Who does he think he is to be making this kind of claim for himself? We came here to hear a sermon. And what we're getting is a proclamation from this man that, that he is God's anointed. God's anointed? He's a carpenter from down the road. How can anyone like that have such a station? That can still happen. Perhaps somebody's called to preach the gospel and maybe he's from your village or you knew his family. And the fact that you knew his family is actually enough. Oh, I knew that person's family. I knew his father and he's a bit shifty as a shopkeeper. End of your listening. You're not going to hear that man, are you? You knew his family. You knew his background. Do you not think that God can do things with people? Do you not think he can't take people from all kinds of backgrounds? all kinds of unpromising situations and turn them into his own preachers. He can do the same when he's making Christians. He brings people from all kinds of ranks and stations in the world and he makes them Christians. And it's no use saying, oh, I knew that person long before he was converted, so-called. I knew them when they were doing this and I knew them when they were doing that. Well, so what? So what? The question is, what has God done with them now? And there's just no justification to start in the middle of this to say, oh well, we know his father and we know his mother and we know his brothers and his sisters. Clearly they're not accepting what he's saying. And I wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that he's preaching from a section of Isaiah's gospel that is speaking about the blessings of God pouring out to the Gentile people, which a lot of them just didn't want to hear. Because 
Having lost the Spirit of God, they had just become nationalists. Fierce nationalists. And they just didn't want to know about that kind of thing. And so Jesus says, I know he says what you're thinking. And you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself. In other words, they're saying, um, what, what you did in Capernaum, what you've done in all these villages, do them here for us now. Perform. Perform. Do your miracles. Let's see your miracles. There's an aggressiveness to it. And the Lord recognizes that. Now if, if any place in Galilee had no justification for saying that, it's Nazareth. Nazareth. Did they know Mary very well then? What kind of woman did you know? Did you not know the godliest woman in the village? Did you not know a woman the like of which there was no other? And you say that you knew himself. What kind of man did you know for the last 30 years? What kind of man was living in the carpenter shop? Is he not a man that must have made you wonder from time to time? Did he not make you wonder that there was no guile, no deceit in his mouth? Did he not make you wonder that all these years, even before he went into the ministry, he was holy and harmless and undefiled? That he was without spot and he was without blemish? Did you not wonder at any of that? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. After his three-year ministry, the Lord could turn round to the people and say, which of you can convict me of sin? It's an astonishing thing to say. But after 30 years in Nazareth, he could say, which of you could convict me of sin? And none of them could. But all they do is come out with the usual rubbish. The usual rubbish. And there's less excuse for it. And because there's less excuse, there's greater condemnation for Nazareth. Which is a sobering thought. In a way, it's so like us asking for signs when we hold the signs that we have in contempt. There's someone you know well, they've been changed by the power of grace, and you say, well, I still want a sign. What are you doing with the sign you've got? Did you ever go to God and say, well, something's happened in this person's life, I can't deny it. Please, please show me if there's reality in this. Did you, even, did you even stoop that low, which is not very low? Did you even stoop that low and ask God just to show you something because there's a walking sign in your family that wasn't there before? No. What was Christ's response to this briefly? Well, first, another gospel tells us that he performed no mighty works in Nazareth. And that's quite a thought. He revisited the town a second time. We're told that he did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's quite a thought to think that the more the more you resist the gospel, the less the gospel comes to you. The second thing Christ does, as well as not doing any mighty works, is that he actually gives them a warning that God might bypass them altogether. And he says to them, from your past, he says it happened before, there were plenty widows in Israel 
during the three-year famine. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent outside to a widow in Sarephath. What was God saying to Israel then? Or he says the next great prophet that God raised up, Elijah, he said, uh, there were plenty lepers in Israel in Elijah's days, but the only one we have a record of healing was a man who humbled himself coming down from Syria and dipping in the Jordan seven times. Christ is effectively saying, if you don't listen properly, God may bypass you too, in spite of all your privilege, because after all, God made me grow up in your midst for 30 years. Take heed, in other words, in case your rejection of God becomes God's rejection of you. And can I say that to you, just to take heed, wherever you be, that your rejection of God doesn't eventually become God's rejection of you. Their response to that, uh, staggeringly, is um, to take him out of the synagogue to the brow of the hill on which the village was built and they were going to throw him down the 40 foot drop effectively down a cliff except suddenly they just all backed off and Christ walked through them there's no explanation for that the only explanation for that is that God intervened Similar to the way in which he intervened at the Garden of Gethsemane when they were going to arrest him and they just backed off and fell to the ground. Same thing here. One minute they're going to throw him down the precipice then they suddenly back off and Christ walks through them. It's not his time. It's not his time and God's in full control of all these things. From this point Christ moves the Christ who would have probably headquartered in Nazareth moves his headquarters to Capernaum. He's moving away. I just mentioned a while ago that he came back for a second visit. When he came back for a second visit, it's just enough to say that the response was the same. Pretty much exactly the same. But we're told on that occasion, the second occasion, that Christ marveled at their unbelief. He only marveled twice in the Gospels. Once at the faith of the Roman centurion, which we mentioned in the morning, he mentioned he marveled his faith, and here he marvels at the unbelief of his hometown. He marvels because he found faith where he would least expect it, and he found unbelief where he would least expect it. And the, the thought that struck me actually before I just came out was this, that he marvelled at the unbelief of those who had marvelled at his own preaching. Now is that not a thought? He marvelled at the unbelief of those who had marvelled at his own preaching. Oh friend, may that not be you. If there is any power coming to you from the word of God, Use it before it vanishes away. Let's call on God's name and pray. Eternal God, we praise you for uh, the faithfulness with which you bring the message to us. 
even though we are unworthy of it. And many of us have been as privileged as the people of whom we were thinking. And we are conscious that perhaps for many years in our lives we abused these privileges or at least did nothing really with them. Enable us to recognize the time that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by us in the gospel and he will soon be out of sight. Enable us like the woman to touch the hem of his garment and before it is too late. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Let's um, <coughs> close our service singing uh, from Psalm 95. Verse 6, come and let us worship him, and let us bow down with all and on our knees before the Lord our Maker, let us fall. There's a warning that begins at the end of verse 7, which moves on grammatically into verse 8. Today, today, if ye his voice will hear, then harden not your hearts, as they did in the provocation, in the desert, on the day of the temptation. That word temptation is an old form of the word temptation, trial. When me your fathers tempted and proved and did my working see, even for the space of forty years this race hath grieved me. I said, this people errs in heart, my ways they do not know. I pray God isn't saying that about any one of ourselves, to whom I swear in wrath that to my rest they should not go. 6 to 11, we stand to sing. <laughs> Oh.
fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.